Good afternoon and welcome to the Dungeon Musings Podcast. My name is Kevin Madison and I will be your friendly Dungeon Muser today. Uh, today we are going to talk about actually a, I'm doing a topical uh, episode as opposed to just a general whatever random nonsense I want to think about. Uh, we're going to talk about canon. Uh, the thing that seems to be uh, a hot button issue in uh, Dungeons and Dragons at least right now is uh, the topic of canon, and as a, uh, a fan of uh, many old-school versions of D&D, I thought it would be beneficial to talk about um, the um, impact of canon and uh, this, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Wizards of the Coast's recent uh, couple of statements regarding canon and how they view canon and whatnot, and put that in the context of sort of the broader discussion of canon that seemed to be sparked with um, Star Wars. So uh, anyway, that is the topic of today, canon. So let's get to the episode. So before we start talking about canon, I thought it might be worth uh, putting into context what we're talking about when we're talking about canon. And um, I'm going to do it in the hackiest way, uh, the way that the most, um, you know, uh, underprepared best man might do at at a bride at a uh, wedding uh, toast, which is to, to sort of talk about the, de- the definition of what canon is. And, and I think the reason it's important to talk about that is because it is, um, I think that there is an element of, um, of its origins that is worth uh, discussing. And that is uh, the religious origins. Uh, canon, of course, it refers to uh, at least originally is, is sort of reference to the the bits of the religious dogma for the Catholic Church that is considered part of the actual belief system. Um, it gets adopted and applied to a bunch of other faiths as well too, but when we're talking about canon, uh, we're talking really uh, primarily at, uh, initially about um, what is accepted uh, dogma with as part of the Christian Church and uh, the Catholic Church, and uh, what is uh, is not, what is considered outside of that or heresy. Um, the reason I think it's important to understand to recall these sort of religious origins of the word and of and of the meaning of it, like, is because of, I mean, <laughs> to be honest, how how religiously and how uh, dogmatically some people approach uh, that uh, that topic of, of what is and is not canon. And um, it makes for, an, I mean, in religion, it obviously makes for a very different and more um, personalized and uh, arguably a more important kind of part of, uh, you know, uh, of their defining of themselves and the defining of their uh, place in existence, their importance within existence, and, and whatnot. And while the uh, the idea of there being canon and the importance of canon to fictional universes is not, I don't think, and it's easy to, to you know, sort of poke fun at people who care about this stuff and care about the contents and the, the fictional universes that are built up uh, in relation to certain properties. Um, it is... Uh, uh, it, it's it's easy to to sort of make jokes about that. I I think that it's not quite to the degree, or at least um, a healthy person's relationship to uh, fictional material maybe shouldn't be to the degree that it, it is with your religion. If you have religious beliefs, 
Um, I think they're certainly very, very important. And for some folks, it's it's a defining element of their personality, their characteristic, their their whatever. Like it's it's their being, in the same way that religious canon can as well. So it, it, it like the stakes for this stuff can you know be uh, high f- for the individual. Um, however, uh, the way that fandom has related to the collection of of um, uh, of the uh, what is defined as being part of a of a story, part of a a collective universe and has not has really unhealthily changed kind of since the 80s uh, in a very hostile way and I think it's in and particularly in the last like decade and I think a, a good part of the reaction by wizards to set out like look this is what's canon what isn't canon and whatnot um, I think and then having to clarify what their original statements were is um, in part because of the way that certain uh, way that fandom in general sort of has has developed, and so like going back, and, and uh, you know fandom in respect to all of these things all has something to do with the uh, the fandom. You know, it has to do with the people who are um, who enjoy the content, enjoy you know interrogating the content and whatnot, and the. Original, I think that the original source for this stuff goes back to comics because the um, the folks, not everyone, but there were a number of people who were readers of comics in the 40s and 50s who later became creators in the 60s. In particular, I'm thinking of, of creators like Len Wein and Roy Thomas in particular. Roy Thomas in particular is a huge fan of what has come before and trying to respect that and and uh, incorporate that stuff into the um, you know the body of uh, uh, of his work. Uh, if, if those who are not familiar with the name Roy Thomas, Roy Thomas is, was a writer and then editor uh, and then ch- editor in chief at Marvel Comics in the uh, '60s, and then he went to DC and he's bounced around a fair amount. I ugh, I really should have looked this up beforehand. I honestly can't remember if he's still with us or if he's passed on, but um, Roy Thomas is, is responsible for a lot of really, you know, uh, very inventive um, uh, reinterpretations or um, uh, what do you call it, uh, retroactive continuity changes to uh, Marvel history uh, to incorporate the, um, you know, the, uh, the past of Marvel uh, in particular, a lot of their Golden Age characters into their modern context. Uh, and then he would later go on to be the, uh, the pioneer behind a lot of kind of um, Golden Age-focused uh, uh, stories at uh, DC Comics, including the All-Star Squadron, Infinity Incorporated, and then Young All-Stars. Uh, those are the things that I think he's probably best known for. He's also, obviously, like he wrote some pretty um, important uh, arcs on uh, Avengers as well too. I think the Kree Scroll War is part of his um, oeuvre, or not oeuvre, but his uh, library of work. But even that also, like the uh, the sort of resolution of the Kree Scroll War, incorporates the manifestation of a bunch of Golden Age characters. All this stuff is is um, I mention only because Roy was also a huge part of the fan base too. There was a fan, com- you know, comics fan community. Um, that I think was organized around Alter Ego. I might have that wrong, but there's an Alter Ego comic 
And I believe he was heavily involved with that um, alongside of some other names. Uh, John Byrne, I believe, was involved with that as well before he broke into pro- comics proper. Um, and I think Bill Sienkiewicz uh, might have been part of that as well. Because I think there's a there's a famous sort of mashup uh, that he drew of uh, Batman and Moon Knight that uh, I think appeared in Alter Ego. But anyway, I'm sort of losing myself in comics stuff here. But the reason I mention this stuff is because um, the what he did is um, he you know he really embraced the idea of uh, reconciling what had come before with what is present, and you know shaving off those sharp corners for. Um, you know, for, for where there was ir- things that didn't jive between what had come before and what's present. That approach to comics, the idea of trying to incorporate everything, it sort of, uh, it manifested in different ways at the two different major companies at DC and Marvel. Marvel kind of always, up until the time, technically, I guess, of uh, their, um, not called Final Crisis, it was called uh, Secret Wars, or Secret War, no, Secret Wars, uh, a few years back, when they finally actually ended the 616 history, uh, the there in Marvel's idea, there was always the same history. You know, like what they all occupied a shared universe that that became a very early part of the Marvel kind of uh, ethos. And then uh, over time, the um, uh, they kept adding in and, and uh, supplementing it. So if something had happened in one comic, um, unless it was uh, you know, contradicted or proven to be wrong expressly in another comic, it could be treated as canon, could be treated as actual history, actual part of the history. Marvel went through a number of revisions to to its history over you know the entire length of its um, uh, of its history. And, but I mean that like that playful way of like, hey, let's just figure out a way to make it all work together uh, was one of the attractions for Marvel fans. And it was something that was supported by uh, editorial at uh, Marvel Comics in the form of the No Prize. I've talked about the No Prize before on the podcast about the way of like, well, here's a way of reconciling, you know, you pointed out an error in the continuity of our comic, but you've also pointed out why that actually isn't a continuity error, you know, and um, that became a way of supporting the fans like, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll figure a way to make this all make sense together, but, you know, it all makes sense. In contrast to that, what DC did is it I came up with the idea of different worlds. So there were different worlds where there are different versions of their heroes different uh, would exist. Um, starting with the uh, Flash of Two Worlds comic, I believe, in uh, the 60s, 65, 66, maybe it's earlier than that even. Um, but in, in any event, that one introduced the idea that there are different vibrational uh, you know, frequencies that different realities can exist on and that different Earths with different echoes of the versions of our heroes, our favorite heroes, could exist on those different worlds. And um, that allowed the Golden Age versions of many of their heroes, like Flash and Green Lantern and Hawkman and, um, you know, Green Arrow. And, well, I mean, Green Arrow wasn't DC at first. It was uh, Timely, I believe. No, it wasn't Timely. It was um, Charlton, I think. Um, but in any event, the... Uh, what it did is, is it opened the door to the original versions of those characters to exist on one world while simultaneously you could have the more sci-fi influenced versions that were introduced in the 50s and uh, 60s 
could exist contemporaneously, but on different worlds at different frequencies. So you'd have Earth-1, where the modern-day versions, quote-unquote modern-day versions of the characters existed, and then you'd also have Earth-2. And Earth-2 is where all those Golden Age characters existed, and that's where Roy Thomas would later you know, find uh, a great home in, in developing an incredible story, you know, um, involving these Golden Age characters and, and really expand on what was uh, set out modernizing uh, for, for the 80s, 70s and 80s, I guess, uh, what those characters were up to. Um, but it also allowed them to tell stories that they could not tell in the modern day, like, say, a grown-up uh, Robin. You know, uh, they could talk about Bruce Wayne's daughter, uh, who became um, the Huntress. They could talk about, uh, you know, a different version, sort of different take on Supergirl in the form of Power Girl, who would be Superman's cousin, but could have a completely different personality. You could have uh, those characters who were introduced in the Golden Age uh, grow and age and, you know, and and become the... Um, go, go into to different parts of their life, different stages of their life, than what we could follow in the, uh, or at least what they were interested in following in the modern day comics. So we could see Bruce Wayne become the, either the, I can't remember if he was district attorney or the commissioner, police commissioner. Um, but we also got to see him become a, uh, or um, Superman become the uh, editor of uh, the Daily Planet. So the great thing with this was that it allowed DC to have their cake and eat it too. They could have modern day stories telling about, you know, a, a, uh, the version of uh, of their iconic characters that was that were sort of timeless or at least of a of the current age. You know, Superman could be a broadcaster working for Galaxy Broadcasting, and uh, you know, Batman could be the Dark Knight Avenger with a very young uh, Robin sidekick. Uh, and you could also have another earth of it where you could tell stories about, you know, um, Batman or Bruce Wayne marrying, uh, Selena Kyle and then having a daughter and Robin becoming a Senator, you know, and, uh, growing up and, uh, and then you could also see generational characters, uh, take the, uh, the next uh, step in the form of infinity incorporated and which I think was started in all-star comics, uh, maybe, um, but in any event, the, um, the, the great thing um, with that approach is that you still had a way of sort of respecting, or at least, I mean, I say respecting as if like it, it should be held dearly, um, but I mean, respecting the stories that, that came before while still also being able to drive your stories forward and not being rooted in that past. That wasn't good enough for DC Comics, though, and then in uh, 1985 is when we saw a the revision, the uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths, where they decided to consolidate everything into one Earth. There was one Earth where all stories took place, and that removed a bunch of... It caused a huge amount of um, continuity errors because they were trying to have the, ex, uh, the All-Star Squadron and the Legion of Superheroes and whatnot all exist in the same kind of continuity... The trouble being, of course, that like some of them didn't make sense with the in the context of the new continuity. In particular, um, Legion of Superheroes struggled greatly with that because there was no Superboy any longer. There were ways around it, and they told some really terrific stories uh, about you know uh, with those characters and with those continuity changes. But what that sort of served as was a hard reboot of the history of that universe. 
And it was the first time where they officially said, look, this stuff doesn't exist anymore. This is the story, you know? And then progressively over the next three decades, they chipped away at that principle. Because, I mean, honestly, one of the cool things about DC Comics was seeing those alternate versions of those characters. It started chipping away, uh, arguably, with the... Um, I mean, with a transitional story uh, that uh, Alan Moore wrote for Superman that was called uh, Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow. And one of the things it starts with is this is an imaginary story, which is how a lot of Golden Age or Silver Age stories talk about. When In the Silver Age, when they wanted to tell a fictional story, like, say, about Superman's kid, or, like, what if he got married to Lois Lane, or what if he got married to Laurie Lemaris, the uh, the mermaid that he loved, you know, uh, when he was a kid? Um, they tell these stories, but they say it's an imaginary story. So Alan Moore starts this transitional story, which was to end the old continuity, uh, which itself had was not really the oldest continuity, and then start a new one. Um, and what it um, what it did is um, it, uh, uh, it said that uh, this is an imaginary story, aren't they all? Which is, I think, a perfect encapsulation of how all these stories, like none of them, they only have ma- uh, importance because you choose to uh, attribute them. Like the companies will tell you this is the story going forward, but more in a brilliant and subtle little way of saying, look, all the shit's made up anyway says that, of course, these are all made-up stories. So, yeah, this this um, this doesn't, this story will not, quote-unquote, matter in the sense that it's not going to be referred to, it's not going to be, um, have influence on the stories going forward, but they're all nonsense. It's only what you choose to put importance on. And the reason that's uh, important is, is for uh, the, um, what do you call it, uh, the, uh, the, the importance that you put yourself, you know, if there's the stakes that you put on these stories, if they're imaginary stories in the sense that they don't matter whatsoever, well then, you know, the, it doesn't matter. Like what, Superman's going to be back to normal at, at the end of it, but it, a story like um, whatever happened to the man of tomorrow. And if you haven't read it, I, it's, I, I, it's a great read, really, really fun uh, story. It's two issues. You can uh, get it in a two issue collection. Uh, the art is all by Kurt Swan, who's, I think, most strongly identified with the art of Superman from the, the 1960s up until the 1980s. And uh, it's great. It's a great, like, very high-stakes story that provides a resolution for the Superman mythos from that time. And um, the reason that, uh, again, like, I think it was a great way of, of nodding, because Moore may have already, you know, he already sort of knew that by locking in what is and is is not canon, you're not and not allowing writers to explore a lot of that older material. You're really hampering that, like the the enormous creativity that was expressed through these bonkers stories of the uh, 50s, 60s, uh, and even the earlier stories too, the the 30s and 40s stories of uh, Superman. Like that stuff's just got some phenomenal. It, it, their stories themselves are not necessarily accessible uh, anymore, but there's elements in there that are just great. And Grant Morrison is perhaps the best writer known, or the writer best known for um, revisiting and reintroducing a lot of that element. Uh, Morrison is a huge fan of the bonkers stories of the 60s and 50s, 
and uh, incorporates a lot of that, uh, the elements from that into his work at uh, DC through the late 90s through to the like 2010s-ish uh, work. But um, the um, the reason I mention all this stuff, I'm sorry if I'm bombarding you with a bunch of canon stuff, is that DC over time eventually laxed its, uh, its rules and started coming up with new sort of like ways of... Uh, uh, of where are you going to get in? Go, 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 go. Um, new ways of sort of relaxing those uh, those rules and allowing there to be more um, more use of alternate realities and stuff. Elseworlds started coming out very shortly after Crisis. And it started uh, like within five years for sure. And it started telling these alternate takes on characters like, you know, uh, what if Superman landed in the Soviet Union? That's a much later one, but... You know, what if um, uh, Clark Kent was adopted, or Kal-El was adopted by the Waynes, and then they were killed? There's a great one called Speeding Bullets by, uh, I can't remember who the writer was, Mike W. Barr maybe? And uh, Eduardo Barreto is the artist on it who's phenomenal. But anyway, the, the reason I mention all that stuff is because as a fan of DC Comics, if you lived through that period, or even if, as a fan of Marvel Comics, when you would see, like, now here's the secret history, like, especially the 90s, 90s, was so bonkers for uh, blatantly changing history or reintroducing secret history or shit like that. Like, if um, if you were a long-term comic fan, uh, you became accustomed to massive changes in the voice of your favorite heroes or heroines. Uh, you became accustomed to giant changes in status quo, uh, changes in what was said to be canon or not, um, giant, you know, backstories that were revealed in a dramatic fashion. All that shit is, was just standard par for the course. Being told that old stories didn't matter or things didn't matter. That's all par for the course for any comics fan growing up through that period. And this is the same period as well, too. A lot of those fans would have been kids during Star Wars as well, too. So when Star Wars goes through this period in the, um, the aughts when, uh, Disney acquires it and decides, like, oh, this stuff's not canon anymore, and there was a fair amount of uproar over certain stories and whatnot, you know, unless you didn't live through those changes with comics, and maybe there's a lot of people who weren't. The Star Wars fan base, certainly at the time, was much bigger than what the uh, the comics fan base was. But it's just like, what, what, like, how have you not recognized that you've gone through this before? You know, so there was this huge... Um, Uproar over the uh, you know what was canon, what was not, and blah blah blah. And this is carried on as things have elements from old canon have been reintroduced into the Mar uh, Star Wars universe too. Like we're seeing elements of the Timothy Zahn novels being introduced, and we're seeing elements of old Ma Ralph McQuarrie drawings. Like this is all the shit that we went through. If you were a fan of DC Comics from the mid '80s up until the present day, you know, and um, I just you know, like the, maybe it's the internet, maybe it's just, you know, I don't know, like the, the, there seems to be like the people who were particularly perturbed by, um, the changes in lore, um, seem to most to be the fans who were most dogmatic in their, uh, in their headcanon of what made, you know, how they made sense of the, of the years of stories that were for different uh, uh, stories, for different characters. The, the Legion Superheroes is a great example of that because the Legion um, purported to have a single history up from, you know, when the Legion Superheroes was created in the, I want to say, late 50s, early 60s. 
uh, right up until the time that the Legion of Superheroes, the original version, ends in the um, uh, zero hour uh, event from the early to mid 90s, from 94, I believe, is zero hour, 94, 95. Um, then they they officially relaunched it, but I mean they'd already done sort of soft reboots of the continuity uh, in the interim, um, thanks to the um, what do you call it? Thanks to the uh, um, the uh, the needs of uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths. They needed to sort of reinvent and explain the difference between why Superboy was there in old stories and why he wasn't and why that wasn't a problem. So. Um, so that's, I mean, the reason I mentioned the Legion of Superheroes is because that's an, an incredibly devoted fan base. Like, you want to talk about uh, fans going on to being writers. The writers who took over the Legion of Superheroes, uh, first as co-writers and then as the sole authors, were these two, uh, Tom and Mary Birnbaum. And they were massive mega fans uh, uh, for the Legion. Uh, and, you know, complete with, like... Um, Fan or our fanzines and and uh, whatnot and uh, fan newsletters, and uh, they would have had their own headcanon of, of what's what's happened in all the different comics and and their ways of reconciling things that didn't make sense any longer. Particularly the depiction of technology in that one, it, it didn't make sense. And the uh, one of the editors at DC Comics and writers, Paul Levitz, uh, who went on to be a writer with uh, or was a writer for Legion Superhero for a very long time. Paul Levitz's uh, res- resolution for this was to say, look, uh, in the 1960s or 50s, we didn't have a way of communicating what the actual technology of the Legion of Superheroes was. So what we did was depict what we could think of, which was flying belts or whatever, as opposed to the rings that, that they actually used the whole time, you know, or rocket packs as opposed to the rings. And um, the... The reason, again, like these guys were fans like Thomas, where Thomas, who became uh, the actual writers, the authors working in the, uh, you know, on the actual property, and um, their work, likewise, what had just, you know, what we'd now call deep cuts, like great references to older material, uh, the relationships of the characters were made sense based on that stuff, you know. If you were coming in fresh to these characters, some of the stuff may not make sense. I mean, it wasn't like references for the sake of making references, but like there was stuff in there that if you were a hardcore fan, if you were in, you know, part of the in community, you'd know what they were talking about. You know why they were referencing certain things. And the reason that that stuff is is uh, uh, important is because that was their way of sort of dealing with the canon. They, they you know, keep what they could and, and in the same way or similar way to what um, Marvel has, uh, or what Marvel, what uh, um, uh, Star Wars has been doing, which is, you know, including some references to, uh, like, Zahn and, uh, you know, in, in slowly introducing old uh, elements, uh, you know, including planets that are re- introduced or were introduced in Knights of the Old Republic, it's their way of honoring that old stuff, but, but you know, um, allowing there to be a kind of a fresh start as well. And I know I'm presenting these as both two different, you know, things, like as if, like, the DC way of, of approaching it was hampering storytellers, and then also the Star Wars one is a fresh new start. It's true for both. I mean, it's both of those things um, simultaneously. And with D&D... 
their newest approach now is to officially say that if something has, has been introduced in 5th edition, then it's canon. Otherwise, it's an open question. That's how DC and other, you know, comics companies... Marvel now is, has not, you know, expressly said what is and is not canon. Um, and this is what we can expect going forward. Fans of all those other properties like Star Wars... Star Wars is the one that people are most uh, commonly referencing right now as in like, oh, this is just like what Disney did and blah, blah, blah. And it's like... All I can think is, is that if you genuinely are a fan of, say, you know, the third edition of D&D or the um, second edition uh, content of D&D, you probably were a passing fan, if not an actual, like, full-on uh, comic fiend. Um, so, and you probably are old enough to have gone through this stuff before. So I, I don't get why there's such an uproar over this particular approach that they're taking because it's right out of the playbook of what the other companies have done so far. Like, this is exactly what we've done. And it all came... I mean, how that, how you feel about how that has worked out for each of those properties, for DC Comics, for whatever, that's, I mean, that's a completely purely subjective um, assessment or opinion. Whether you like it, whether you don't like it, whether you think they ruined it or not... There's lots of folks who think that uh, Crisis ruined things for uh, for DC Comics. Uh, but, I mean, it, it isn't anything new. And it's so... And we've had plenty of experience with, as a collective kind of fan community, if you're fans of all of those things, of dealing with this stuff, you know? If you don't like what's going on right now, that's okay. They'll probably... You know, they're probably going to incorporate a bunch of the stuff that was there before... And this is precisely what D&D has done, or which is the Coast has done. It's, you know, not for nothing. They're, on all the covers of all the core rulebooks, you've got iconic characters, some of which have not appeared in the last edition or two editions or more. So, you know, like the, the this strange hand-wringing, you know, pearl-clutching response to the changes or the statements on canon... Um, it's just baffling to me because it's like, well, what did you think was, was happening? Like, have you not been paying attention to what they've been publishing? Um, and for those who have missed the statement, what they've effectively said is, and it was a statement at first that just said by, uh, gosh, who was it? Um, not James Wyatt, uh, somebody at, at Wizards in any event, someone in the, uh, in the brand, uh, said that, uh, there is no canon. Like there's, unless it's in 5th edition, canon for 5th edition starts at 2014 and, uh, and goes forward from there. And the, um, the, the reaction to that was not great, saying like, well, what are you talking about? This is, it invalidates all these novels and blah, blah, blah. And um, the response for the, um, or the, this required a response uh, or for clarification from Wizards that came yesterday from... Uh, um, Chris Perkins, that just said basically that, like, each edition has its own canon, which is how it's always been. There's not necessarily, in some cases, they've had hard resets, like the change to, say, Forgotten Realms between 3rd um, edition and 4th edition, um, or just soft reboots, like Dark Sun between 2nd edition and 4th edition, um, or it's been continuous, like uh, the way, from what I understand, Dark Sun, or not Dark Sun, Dragonlance has been. Because Dragonlance has continued publishing novels that have pushed the storyline forward. So, like, 
this is how things have been for, you know, from every edition, from the transition from first edition to second edition, we had in Forgotten Realms the Time of Troubles, which was a change to the to the the canon. Now, obviously, the difference there, and what they will argue is that well, there's not there was a clear continuity going from one to the other, and that's true to a degree, but there was massive changes between in in the cosmology between uh, second edition and third edition already. You couldn't have Dwarven Wizards before 3rd edition. You certainly could then. And they started introducing characters to that, you know, to that effect. Um, so, you know, like, uh, this, the current state of affairs is, you know, that if there's something in a novel somewhere that says something, it doesn't necessarily have any effect on anyone creating content for the, um, for the, what do you call it, for the, um, uh, the tabletop game. And, you know, <laughs> I just, I, I get the, the, uh, the, 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 um, the passion that people have for knowing so much about these settings, right? Like I, I have a buddy who I used to grow up with who, uh, uh, was huge into Forgotten Realms, read all the novels and had this, you know, enormous amount of headcanon lore that he built up. And even in those novels, there's continuity errors and there's, there's contradictions in them. And it just, he chose to reconcile those in whatever way he chose to reconcile them. And the part of the reason why I never ran Forgotten Realms for a long time, this is just anecdotal stuff, so take it for what it's worth, is because, or at least not for him, is because I was not interested in trying to look, make sure I got everything right about the setting. You know, the, um, the thing that uh, they said in a most recent statement is, the thing that is different... For each of these, uh, for for the the D and D stuff, is that in addition to being different at you know different in the um, the way it's presented in the um, uh, what do you call it in the books and the way it's being presented in the uh, say the the uh, video games and the way it's been presented in the tabletop role playing game supplements. Each of those things is going to be its own thing, and they don't necessarily need to reconcile with each other. Um, that's that's the way... And, and Sorry, so all those things have their own things, but in addition to that, your table, your individual table, will be different from any others. That's amazing. I mean, that's the way it's always been, I suppose, that you, know, you make this your own, and they've always said that again, but to reiterate that... This is the, the type of uh, experience you're going to have with Dungeons & Dragons. Now, setting aside, there, there's obviously, you know, one way of enjoying gaming material is by, uh, by reading it. You know, there's plenty of stuff that I read that I don't ever end up running. And I enjoy it, and that doesn't devalue it. But the design for most of the stuff is to be run. Like, the intent of this stuff is pub The reason it's published is so you run it and you play it as a game. So the intended use of all this material is for you to actually be creating your own story in your own world. That is different from how comics are intended to be enjoyed, how films are intended to be enjoyed, how anything else that has a buildup of canon, novels like the Dune series, right? People make a distinction between the Herbert canon and the stuff his son and Kevin J. Anderson wrote afterwards, you know? 
this is um, this is where the canon question, as it were, with respect to the role-playing games, is such a fundamentally different thing because you're always going to be creating your own universe. I've mentioned the word headcanon a bunch of times about like, and headcanon is just sort of a. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the term, but if you're not, it, it's sort of it's a reference to your own way of reconciling how things work in your own head, right? Like in, in your own understanding of the, uh, of the material. Um, where there are gaps that are left in like, say, the history of or the resolution of the stories that you engage with, with like Harry Potter or any other, you know, newer uh, kind of expansive universe, headcanon is sort of what occupies that space. And the thing is with role-playing games is headcanon is, is the thing. It isn't the corollary product of it. It's the thing. If you use the product in the intended way, your headcanon is the thing that matters most. It's what's happening at the table with your characters. And within that headcanon, you can accentuate or you can downplay certain elements of, of the material that you're engaging with, but you're the one who has the ultimate say on what stuff is actually included. Your so in that way, headcanon is paramount in role-playing games in a way that it isn't in any of these other products. You can show, you know, YouTube channels and bulletin boards and whatever, fanzines and whatnot, with all your theories and, and fan stories and whatever else about the material, but that shit's secondary to the primary way people enjoy those things, which is to watch the movies, you know, enjoy the television shows, read the comics, you know, uh, work their way through the novels, whatever. That is not how role-playing games are, are enjoyed. The, the primary intended way for you to use them is at the table, creating your own stories. So in that way, this, uh, the, the importance of canon for the role-playing games themselves. And Wizards isn't saying that no novel needs to make sense with any other novel, and they don't say that the video games can do whatever the hell they want. I mean, the, there needs to be continuity and consistency within those, too, for them to be good products. What they're saying is that for the role-playing books, you do not need to worry yourself. For those who are creating content, for those who are revisiting things, it's like how Star Wars has been doing it. You can feel free to take inspiration from older stuff, you know? We're seeing, I saw recently on uh, DM's Guild, there was a fan creation of Zahara, uh, Zakara, um, Zakara, the setting for Al-Qadim has shown up. And Zakara is not canon right now, at least as far as I can recall, it's not referenced anywhere specifically. Maybe it is in, in one of the uh, player's handbooks or something like that, but in any event, it's not an expressly, you know, it's not a, a campaign that's seen any kind of adventures or whatnot set in it in 2014 or since 2014. However, this fan dove into that, created this thing. And then when you choose to use that, or that product, I'm assuming, incorporate some stuff from the old products and some stuff from the new. The new Ravenloft book is a great example of this, too, where it's taking some elements from the old, some elements from the new, and, and you know, making it its own. Um, but then even... Well, and I guess what that allows the characters, the, the writers to do, the authors of these products, is to have that freedom to a degree that Star Wars and DC Comics writers had at the time, which was 
you know, there were certain defined things um, that, that were part of this official new canon, but there's a whole swath of stuff that isn't official yet, but that you could draw on for inspiration or for reinterpretation or however you want to do it. And some of that stuff is going to upset fans of uh, the older product. But, you know, again, whatever is, at your, is true at your table, if you've got older books and whatnot, use that stuff. Because the headcanon that's happening at your table is the only thing that matters. And the fact that it's not referenced in the product, like uh, the changes that were made in 4th edition, um, uh, what do you call it? 4th uh, edition's versions of, say... Uh, my goodness, uh, Dark Sun and the changes that were certainly made in, in Forgotten Realms were, you know, the Forgotten Realms one was, was rockily received by the, you know, the uh, fan base. The Dark Sun one, less so. They were just happy to see a version of Dark Sun back. And the version of Dark Sun that's in 4th edition and the unofficial version that was uh, published of Dark Sun in 3rd edition in the back of, uh, uh, was it Dungeon Magazine, I think? That stuff was also, it was, it was, there were changes that were made to it. They introduced new races and whatnot to make it compliant with the, the current version. But, you know, there was also changes in Dark Sun along the history. Like, the weird thing with canon uh, is that the, unless you uh, accept that everything, regardless of whether it makes sense or not, uh, is all part of the same history, and you can't even do that like, with, with an expansive universe like Dungeons and Dragons, which is, you know, uh, not quite as old as, but I mean, it's, it's a couple decades younger or decade or so younger than the Marvel universe. Um, there's, you're going to end up having to do some picking and choosing to present what makes sense. So canon, like more so than any other thing, I go back to what Alan Moore says, you know, this is an imaginary story. They all are. And this is true of our role-playing games more so than the other products because, as the old TSR logo says, the games we play are the products of our imagination. Products of your imagination was the byline, but it's products of our imagination. The rule books, the books and whatnot, uh, for the thing that they're intended, again, for playing the game, for reading them, I get that there's an enjoyment there. I get that there's an enjoyment of piecing together a, a cohesive fictional world from that stuff. I get the appeal of that. I under, I'm a huge fan of the No Prize. And I, I'm, I'm happy to, my own head, you know, find the ways that, that reconcile things that don't make sense. But this uh, strange response seems to ignore that, like, you're putting... There's a certain point where you're choosing to put down stakes and call, this is the canon. Okay, this is it. This is what's... This is what makes sense now. And to suggest that there wasn't things different before that or changes made subsequent... Uh, I mean, the changes that are made subsequent are going to say are non-canonical. But it's an odd, dogmatic way of enjoying... Uh, a product. It doesn't mean that you have to like changes that are made. I certainly didn't like a lot of the changes that came from um, uh, the uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths. I love multiple worlds, uh, like having the different uh, alternate Earths. And it was it's part of the reason I enjoy uh, Grant Morrison's work so much is because of the reintroduction of a lot of these bonkers Silver Age ideas. But it doesn't make, you know, the people who loved 
that crisis relaunch, um, any, you know, they're not wrong about it. It's just, that happens to be my, you know, my own head canon and the way I enjoyed the material was not the, the, it just didn't enjoy that, uh, that new take quite as much as I did the older, uh, take, but you know, uh, looking forward, I mean, the, in terms of, um, Wizards of the Coast itself, if you look at the products they've put out thus far, how many of them are intentional retreads of old classic tropes put in a new context, you know, uh, revisiting, we got a, a whole thing about the giants. We got a whole thing about the underdark. We got a whole thing about Tiamat, you know, um, there's so much fan service for old time fans while trying to make also products that are accessible to new fans, uh, to that is so clearly informed by the history. This response, the response that seemed to be, and this could just be a Twitter thing as well too, and just like the noisier elements, but in particular for, for a fan who is coming from, um, someone who really enjoys the, the old school stuff for the people who are of my generation, who would have grown up with these changes to comics for so long. It's just baffling to me that it would engender such a vitriolic response because it just, it speaks to either they're ignoring or they're ignorant of the fact that there's a certain point where they've chosen to solidify the canon and then saying anything that goes forward from that makes no sense. Or they are... Um, they're just not recognizing how things have always been. That it has always been an evolving and changing way of seeing that fictional world. The, the, the Dungeons and Dragons has, has always been slowly changed over time and presented with a different context. This starts with the change of the, um, of the way modules were designed, you know, and presented back with the Ravenloft stories and the Dragonlance modules and the shift towards more of a story-focused thing than their than just a modularity, you know, dungeon challenge, whatever. And again, I'm not saying one is better than the other. It just means like this has always been part of the history. So for them to say in 2021, by the way, we only accept certain things as canon as we go through this, is just it I, I just do not understand the response. If you don't like it, do something different at your table, you know? Um, so in any event, uh, but I guess getting back to this, um, the original definition, the reason I wanted to start with the definition of canon and recognizing that it comes from a religious background is because it's obviously very important. Like there's certain people who like there's, they've got a clear vision of what D and D is and is not in their head and what is canon. And those people who have been reading, you know, novels for years and years and years and years, uh, from the time of, you know, Dark Walker and Moonshay, I think was the first of the novels that was actually published yeah, for Forgotten Realms that launched the, uh, uh, the, actually, I don't remember if they did or if Dragonlance did. I think Dragonlance was the one that, that launched the sort of popularity and then uh, Dark Walker was the first novel to come out in, uh, set in Forgotten Realms, followed shortly by, I think, Crystal Shard. The, if you are a fan like that too, you've lived through these changes before. You lived through these shifts in it too. And why are you choosing to ignore the, the clear tenant of the, that has always been true of this game, that make your own game at your own table. 
And there has never been a canon. It's always been shifting. It's always been changing. They've been altering things and whatnot. And sometimes they're doing it overtly through justification in the uh, in the world. Uh, you know, where like, oh, now there's this thing, spell plague that's happening, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, to think that any for anyone to be able to get up to, to feel that they're up to speed with, uh, say, Forgotten Realms. But the way they need to do that is by going out and springing, you know, for a $125 used copy of a obscure, um, you know, uh, obscure, or a, a book that's about an obscure location in the Forgotten Realms um, in order to f sufficiently feel like, okay, now I'm up to speed and now I can, I can run this because this stuff is true. It's just silly. Like all that stuff is, is supportive material. It's supplementary material, and it should be treated as such. And with anyway, I'm now letting my own subjective bias uh, bleed into this. But it's just I found this an exhausting response from the Star Wars community that really led me to to, to disengage from a lot of it. I just don't I just don't care any <laughs> anymore about uh, Star Wars. It's the fighting in the fan base about that stuff is just exhausting. And um, I, I really do not want to see... It was very disappointing to see the same types of responses come from what I'm... From the Dungeons & Dragons community, and it for sure is coming from the old school community. It's coming from the folks who are fans of those older editions. And, uh, and it's just... It's disheartening. Because, you know, we... We don't want to be seen, the, the old school fans, I love drawing on the old material, I love incorporating the old material, I love running old versions of the game, but we don't want to be seen as the ones who are just saying, stop having, you know, you gotta have fun my way, which is, oh, you gotta know what this was, the, the, the history was. Like, one of the things that, that um, was the reason for the Crisis relaunch was because the amount of knowledge for some fans who are like fans of continuity porn, that uh, deep history of the Legion of Superheroes was super awesome. It was part of what was enjoyable, knowing that, oh, there was this one story where so-and-so was did this kind of thing against this alien, and that's why they have this reaction to them. And I know that, so I know why this is important. That stuff's great. Very hard for the casual fan <laughs> to get into that shit. You know, I shared... Um, with my son, uh, I, I you know I love uh, Legion of Superheroes, and I even tried getting him to understand the starting point of one of my favorite stories, which is the Five Years Later Legion, which is the their post crisis uh, relaunch of that series. And his eyes glazed over. So what did I end up giving him instead was the reboot, the the post zero hour comics that started fresh, no backstory, and then they drew from the original material and he loved it loved it loved it loved it really loved those characters so now i have a version of the characters that i really love he has a version that he really loves and that those are i mean again subjectively those are good comics as well but the thing is for for the new fans and dnd is only going to grow and, and outlive us if there are new fans coming in is that accessibility you know and what wizards is saying with his canon ruling is not, and they're, they're the way they've managed the property up until now, they're not saying that this stuff doesn't matter. Uh, they're saying, look, if you're a new player, you don't need to know about that stuff. 
But we're going to draw on it, and we're going to have Easter eggs in there. And if you want to explore more stuff about that, good news, we have an electronic library, and in some cases, many print-on-demand things. Plus, there's a healthy uh, secondary market that you can pick up some of these books in print, in the original versions if you want, where you can learn a lot more about where these things come from, you know? And that is the way, I think, like, that's the appropriate way to manage um, a continuity hover heavy uh, product or property like Dungeons and Dragons. It's particularly Forgotten Realms. I think the people, it seems like Forgotten Realms is the one that people are the most pissed about in this because it's had so many novels and products and blah, 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 and all this other stuff. So, in any event, I mean, again, recognizing the the identity that people have wrapped up in some of these things, then, and I don't mean that to sound uh, dismissive, I understand that. But if you do have it wrapped up in that, you'd, part of what you need to, I think, at least acknowledge is that there are certain choices you're making that sets the boundaries of what you feel is canon or not, and that is all that Wizards is encouraging people to do is find your own way of having your own headcanon. So, yeah, if you place a lot of value on being able to know that in certain certain novel there's a person who's referenced staying at a certain place at the crossroads of X and Y, you know, water deep thing, and then that person also appears in a gaming product from 1989 or whatever, you know, that's great. And you can incorporate that stuff into your own stories if you want. And maybe they're going to do that in... I mean, they certainly have incorporated a lot of that old stuff in um, the XA Dragon Heist or in uh, Tales from the uh, Yawning, whatever it is, Portal. But, I mean, y you got to recognize that the reason you're having a, a, a negative reaction to this may be to these self-imposed boundaries. On, on what you're seeing as acceptable, not acceptable, or whatever. And if you, recognizing those self-imposed boundaries and recognizing that they're contrary to how Wizards and, I mean, TSR back in the day wanted you to enjoy these products, which is to create your own headcanon, create your own experience at the table. You know, kill Elminster. Please fucking kill Elminster. You know, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to do to, to shake up your world, um, you can do that. Not for nothing, the fourth edition version of Dark Sun completely ignored the entire Prison Pentad uh, series, which dramatically reworked uh, Athos. You know, and uh, I happen to agree with that decision, but it's it's again, I mean, it's it's it was already a matter of them sort of tinkering with the uh, the canon. Same thing with second edition box set, so. Anyway, um, I'm just going in circles here right now. It's a topic that just, it was really eating my, you know, my craw, or stuck in my craw and kind of uh, eating at me uh, since I started reading about it this week. So I thought I'd share my two cents about, um, about canon and about the, pro like, uh, the, I don't want to say proper, but I mean, like, it feels like it's a, it's a, the healthy way to recognize that your relationship to canon is to recognize that you're already making a decision of what is and is, is outside of that stuff. And since that's the case, um, you know, why, how can you begrudge anyone else from doing the exact same thing? But in any event, um, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns regarding my ramblings on canon here, and they definitely got pretty rambly at the end there, <laughs> uh, please don't hesitate to leave a, a voice message for me on Anchor. 
You can reach me on Twitter at Dungeon Musings. You can reach me by email. My email address is uh, dungeonmusings at gmail.com. And um, I will say from now until um, September 10, 2021, if you go to Noble Knight Games uh, and you enter in the uh, discount code NOBLEMUSER, N-O-B-L-E-M-U-S-E-R, all one word, all caps, you can save 10% on any game, uh, any product, any purchase, I should say, over $10, and that stacks with any other thing. They've got a, currently a sale on three for one. Uh, this discount stacks with that. So if you want to indulge in some, um, you know, some uh, uh, canon of your own and pick up some old products uh, or new products, and they carry new stuff as well. Noble Knight is primarily my first source for older products. And they very generously offered a discount code uh, as well, too. Again, it's Noble Muser, all one word, all caps. Get yourself a 10% discount on any purchase over $10. So otherwise, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again. All right, I was almost hitting in, in my hard stop of an hour <laughs> of, on that uh, segment, so my apologies. We'll do a proper outro now as well, uh, until we see him again, uh, or until I speak at you, until you hear me again, stay safe, stay healthy, and happy gaming.